I want to begin by reading Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. This is the second prayer that Paul lifts up to the Lord in the book of Ephesians. We've studied one. That was in chapter 1. Hear it again. Again is a prayer. And we're going to break down the understanding of this prayer in a moment. But I want to read through it so that, we ha- that you have it in your mind before we begin to break down truths that are in these verses. Verse 14. It is for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now this passage is the second of two prayers recorded in Ephesians. And if you remember in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul spends chapter 1 breaking down this divine truth that as a believer, our position in Christ is what? Perfect. Your position in Christ is perfect because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, which means all of the righteousness that Christ is and has is placed upon the believer's account the moment you become a believer. So once he teaches that, he stops and he prays in verses 15 of chapter 1 to 23. The emphasis of the prayer is enlightenment, knowing your position. The second prayer is the one which we'll look at today, is a prayer of enablement. So he moves from empowerment, knowledge, enlightenment, knowledge, to empowerment. He wants us to come to the place now of not only understanding who we are in Christ, not only understanding that we are one in Christ, but that you have the ability to live out that faith in power. And that's the prayer today. That's the focus of the prayer today. He's saying that, Lord, I want these people to grab hold of all that God has for them. I want them to grab hold and understand who they are in you and all the power they have that will enable them to live out this faith. That's his prayer. That's the focus of the prayer today. And it all comes by what? Faith. This is by faith. This walk is by faith. This life is by faith. We live out the power of the Holy Spirit in you and me by faith. And that's the focus of the prayer. And the great climax in this passage, it comes in verse 20 if you look at it. This is now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the what? The power that works in us. That's the climax. That's where we're going. It's praying that God would glorify himself through what he does in and through the life of the believer. Now, we've learned that you cannot live out what you do not what? What you don't know. You can't live out what you do not understand. So many churches today that say, you gotta go, you're a Christian, so you gotta do this. You gotta go do this. You can't do that, right? You can't do this. Christians don't do this, and Christians don't do that. Look, once you know whose you are, once you know who you are in Christ, and you understand your position, you are then able to live out that truth. Otherwise, you have a legalistic mindset. When you understand grace, you begin to live from it. And that's been the whole focus of these teachings here. And now he wants you to understand that you are able to live this truth out. Now we move from this enlightenment to the notion that this knowledge moves us to the place of enablement only when the will is moved to do so. And that lies in guess whose lap? All of yours and in mine. The whole of the Christian life is a matter of applying God's power to everyday life. Applying the power that we have in us to every facet of our life. So we have enlightenment or knowledge is moved now to enablement or an act of the will. An illustration of this, yesterday I was doing some uh, 
maintenance on this motorcycle I have. About three years ago, I built a custom Harley-Davidson. It's a hobby of mine. It's something I've just enjoyed my whole life. So three years ago, I was actually able to do it. So I purchased this frame, and I got the main parts. I got the frame. I got the tanks. I got the fenders. I got the wheels. I got the forks, right? It was almost like a, what they call a rolling chassis, right? You have everything but all the major parts to make it run. I rolled this thing out, put it on my garage, and it sat in pieces for almost a year on my garage. And I began to accumulate parts, handlebars, a swing arm, which is the rear end, which holds the whole tire on and the brake system and all of that. I, I got new handlebars, and uh, I bought better wheels. I bought a transmission. I even ordered a, a motor from the manufacturer, Harley-Davidson manufacturing plant in Milwaukee. So I had all these pieces laying in my garage, including a motor and a crate. Then I got a master builder to help me. Loaded it all up on my truck, and I took it to his little shop, and I would go up there every Friday, and I would spend Friday and part of Saturday putting this thing together, and I became very familiar with how it all went together. Finally get it done. Then I had to go do the paperwork, which means first I have to, in the motorcycle, it's a custom type of thing, you have to take it to the CHP, California Highway Patrol. They check it, and they're checking for serial numbers. They want to make sure it's not stolen. Well, I had, of course, I had the certificate for the motor because I bought it from Harley-Davidson. One paperwork that I didn't have was the serial number to the frame. And it was, you know, it caused me kind of pro it caused some problems, so I had to track down this old company that was actually the manufacturer of it. Long story boring, this motorcycle all put together, all fit together. I had the key, I had fuel in the tank, only to sit there and look at it in my garage for about two weeks. I legally couldn't ride it. I couldn't get out and go on it because it wasn't legal. Finally got it all straightened out, and finally... The reason I maintained it yesterday is because I'm riding it, and I've been riding it ever since. So all I could do was dream about it. You know, many Christians are that way. They know all the parts that make up the whole to Christianity. They have all this knowledge about what Christ has done. They have all this knowledge about who they are in Christ, but they never move their will to start the engine so they can ride down the road. They never have the knowledge of understanding that they have within them the ability to enable their will to do that, which Christ defines and declares through Scripture. That's sad. So their life is powerless, and it becomes nothing but this great profession of faith, never lived out in the very power that we have been granted by the Father of Heaven, the residence of the Holy Spirit. An impotent, Christian life. And so many professing Christians live impotent spiritual lives. And that is sad. They have this knowledge, but they never get moving. The very prayer that Paul is lifting up to the Lord is that Christians will have the understanding, the churches Ephesus will have the understanding on all this knowledge that they have of who they are in Christ that will enable their will to move. To get on down the road. You know, one of the greatest frustrations in ministry is dealing with people who they know all of this and they never function according to the power of chapter 3, verse 20. You know, one Bible commentator refers to this prayer. He refers to it as the starting of the engines for the race of chapter 4 through 6. Because when we get to chapter 4, all the way through 6, you're going to see... Life principles that we're to adhere to as believers. So with all the knowledge that you have of the theology of chapters 1, 2, and 3, ought to move you and me to the practical application of all that truth in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And Paul's breaking it down. He's praying. He's pleading that there'll be an understanding. And again, all this power boils down to one thing, an act of what? The will. Because as a believer, your will has been set free from the bondage of sin and death. Unbelievers, they're not free will agents. Their will is in bondage to sin. And it's only Christ that can free you from that bondage. And we sit here today free in Christ. Amen? If you're a believer, you are free in Christ. Your will has been set free. You have the ability to serve the living God of the universe because the living God of the universe lives in you. That's what he's pleading. He's pleading. So that leads us to our study, verse 14. 
Verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason. We have to look at that for a moment. Now, for this reason takes us back to verse 1 of chapter 3. You remember that? Okay? Paul breaks down all this truth in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then look at chapter 3, verse 1. What does he say? For this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, and then he stops. He stops. So there's no verb there. He says, if indeed you have heard, and then he goes down to break all this truth down again. He stops in the middle of this thought. He was getting ready to pray for them, and he basically says, you know what? I want to make sure you understand this one more time. And he goes down to break all this truth of which we spent the last few weeks over, going over it again. So here we have him finally get into the prayer. So we've got to say, for this reason. What reason? You know what the reason is? Chapter 2, verse 22. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Which takes us back to all of chapter 2. That's the reason he stops and prays. And just as a refresher to all of the great truth, a recap of chapter 2 reminds us of what we were before Christ. Okay? If you ever walk in a puffed-up pride because of your Christianity, go back to chapter 2 and be quickly reminded of where he brought you out of. Just a quick reminder. We, verse 1, chapter 2, were dead in trespasses and sins. Amen? But God, who is rich in his mercy, he made us alive, verses 4 through 5. We're saved by grace, verse 8. We are his workmanship, verse 10. We're brought near by the blood, verse 13. He himself is our peace, verse 14. We're reconciled to God, Jew and Gentile, as one, verse 16. And we have access to God, verse 18. We're citizens of the saints, members of God's household, verse 19. All fit together as one in Christ, as his holy temple, verse 21. And then finally, verse 22, we're the very dwelling place of God. The very dwelling place of God. So the point is this. It's inconceivable to Paul that some Christian has within him the triune God, but yet lives a life of powerlessness. Inconceivable to Paul. So he's breaking down this prayer. You know, there's nothing more tragic than a knowledgeable Christian who comes limping in and out of counseling week after week, month after month, year after year, falling into the same old patterns of sin. Never moving in the direction of a walk of righteousness that's been imparted to us by God to live out what he's worked in, you see? Very discouraging. So if one, in his free will in Christ, never wills to start the engine, God may indeed, if you're a Christian, check it out, will give you a powerful jump start. If you're a Christian, and you walk in disobedience and you never move your will to walk out the truth that we've learned about in chapters 1 and 2 and part of 3, he may jumpstart you into obedience. Did you know that? Because what does God do to those he loves who walk in disobedience? He chastens them because he loves them. What father is there among you who loves his children who does not discipline them, man, right? If you love your kids, you'll discipline them. The theologian John Hanna, he said this in regard to Hebrews 12 which that is the verse on the chastening of the Lord. He said, if one claims to be a saint, a Christian, and remains disobedient to God, there's only one thing to say to him. If you are a son, you can anticipate the chastisement of God. But the longer he waits to come to you, check this out, the longer he waits to come to you, the more you need to be assured that you never knew him. Because whom the Father loves, he does chasten, and he does scourge every son. So if you remain rebellious or indifferent towards God, but you profess to be a Christian, you do yourself well to take heed to that statement. Because God has enabled you to live out what you know, and if you don't live out what you know, he may jumpstart you into obedience and allow things in your life to break you down, to bring you to that point of repentance. Because he only wants the best for you. He wants the best for you. And the best is your life bringing glory to who? The one who bought you. The one who paid the price for you. Which is a gift of grace. You with me? Paul prays for three things in this prayer. The Spirit's power, 
Christ, Christ indwelling and fullness. So all in all, he's really praying for one thing, guys. All in all, one thing. The empowering of the Spirit. That's his prayer. So I ask you this as we move on in the study. What does your prayer life consist of? What is the focus of your prayers? When you pray, what are you asking for more than anything else? Do you pray? We'll start there. How about that? Do you pray? And when you pray, what are the focus of your prayers? Is it material things? Material comfort? Day-to-day comfort? Fame, fortune, and everything that goes with it. Remember that song? Just came to my bright mind. Or do you pray for the things that Paul's praying for? You know what it is? The inner man. You pray for the inner man? You pray of what? Of becoming what he wants you to become? Or do you look at the culture and you want everything that the culture has to offer and you pray for those things? Or you're praying, Lord, conform me into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, whatever it takes. Make me that man you want me to be. Make me the woman you want me to be. That's maturity. So, for this reason, we know the reason, right? The reason is all that you've been given in Christ, you are positionally righteous, you are perfect in his sight because of his grace, because of his blood. We've been made one in Christ, Jew and Gentile, male and female, all one in Christ. And for this reason, of all the gifts that have been given to you, I now bow my knees and pray on your behalf, is what he's saying. So that's the reason, which moves him, second part of 14, I bow my knees. I bow my knees. Here we see Paul's posture. He prays while bowing his knees before the Lord. Now we know he was chained to a Roman soldier, right? He probably led that guy to Christ. I'm sure he, I'm sure Paul led this Roman soldier to Christ, and we read in other parts of the Bible that his chains have benefited for the growth of the kingdom, right? For people of Caesar's household have actually, actually come to faith in Christ because of Paul's chains. Last week we looked at, you know, how do you look at the situation and circumstances in your life? Is it for material comfort, the here and now, or for the greater thing that God may be doing in and through your life, through the circumstance? We can learn a lot from Paul. I have no idea what it means to suffer compared to that brother at all. And there's some days I get up here or teach in any Bible study, it's like, Lord, I have no place. No place. It's all by his grace, too, that I'll be standing before you today. I bow my knees, he says. You know, the Bible nowhere commands that this is some special posture of prayer that is commanded that you have. As a matter of fact, in 1 Kings 8, verse 22, Solomon, Solomon dedicated the temple as he stood with his hands lifted up and he prayed. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22. Then in 1 Kings 8, 54, we know he, maybe he, he must have knelt somewhere in there because it says later he knelt and he rose from his knees in verse 54 of 1 Kings 8. Abraham stood before the Lord as he prayed for Sodom in Genesis 18. And it says that David sat as he prayed about the future of his kingdom in, in 1 Chronicles 17. And we know that Jesus in the garden fell on his what? Face, prostrate before the Lord. But there's something about that bowing of the knee. You're not commanded to do it. You know what it is? That's a posture of humility. It's a posture of humility that Paul had. And that's a heart issue, guys. You can get on your knees physically, be the most proud, puffed up, self-righteous, outwardly focused person in the world, right? It's kind of like the story that Jesus told the tax gatherer and Pharisee who was in the temple praying. He said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, right? I tie the tenth of all that I have. I pray three times a day. I do this. I do that. And I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this tax gatherer over here. And the tax gatherer's in the corner, unable even to lift his face and say, God, have mercy on me, what? Sinner. You know who went away justified that day, according to Jesus Christ? Tax gatherer did. Because it was a position of the heart. Position of the heart. What's the position of your heart? What's your prayer focus? You know, there's something about bowing that knee, though. In Ezra 9, I was kind of doing some cross-references in Scripture this week, and 
Ezra is coming to confess his sins and the sins of Israel. Listen to what he says. Ezra 9, verse 5, it says, At the evening sacrifice I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees, spread out my hands to the Lord God, and I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Here we see a response of humility of the heart. You have that kind of humility over your sin? Because you got sin in you still, brothers and sisters. we got sin in us, right? And when God points it out, when he convicts you, what's your response? How do you respond? Is it a humility of heart? You bow the knees of the heart for the Lord. Ezra did. In Acts chapter 20, Paul's in Ephesus, right? And he's informing them that he's ready to depart. He's going to leave. They're never going to see him again. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be chained. I'm going to suffer persecution, right? And they loved him. They loved him. And it says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. So here's a heartbreak of circumstance. When I was reading this this week, it reminded me of something that's branded into my memory. And it's about five years ago. And I was in the hospital with some dear friends of mine, and this young lady, 21 years old, one of the most godly women I have yet to meet in my life. 21. Her name was Melissa. And she had cancer. And if you guys know the uh, Christian artist Jeremy Camp, that was his wife. And I'll talk about this because I have freedom too, because he's publicly talked about this. So I'm with Jeremy, I'm with Melissa, she's dying of cancer, and all of Melissa's family is there, and I'm there for weeks, days on end, we're just there, and I'm just kind of standing by, just ministering and being there, keeping my mouth shut. Which, by the way, do you ever have a friend who's going through some very difficult time, maybe dying of cancer? Okay, you don't have to have all the answers and all the words, okay? To sit there, as Job's friends did in the beginning, and just zip the lip, lock it, and throw away the key, probably the best thing you can do. You don't have to have the answers. Be encouraged in that. Just being there. Just being there. Mourning with those who mourn. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Will be very effective ministry that you can do. And that's much of what I did. And I went and I would read scripture with her and talk, her and Jeremy, the family. But here's the one thing I remember. The very last day that she was alive, you kind of know it was coming to an end, you know? And late that night, she took her last breath, and we all knew it because I heard gasps in the, hall, in the hallway. I heard all these gasps, all these pain, all this sorrow, and I looked in the room. Jeremy, Melissa's parents, her sisters, his bro her brother, were all on their knees blasting this praise song, lifting their hands to heaven, looking up and praising God. Wow, I'll never, ever forget it. Heartbreak of circumstance. But they were kneeling before the God, sovereign God, sovereign God of the universe in thanks for her life. Though it was short from our little earthly perspective, her work here was done. God took her home. So we have much more than a posture of prayer here. You guys, the meaning here is prayer itself. Posture of the heart, humility of the heart, before a sovereign God. Do you submit yourselves to his sovereignty? Do you pray in accordance to his sovereignty? Do you pray according to his will as laid out and defined through scripture? That's the question. That's the question. It's that we would bow our hearts and our wills. You see what I'm saying? Bowing the will before the Lord Jesus Christ for your very life. Ask them for what we need spiritually. You do that? Because, you know, that can be painful in this life. Lord, may your will be done in and through my life. Pray that. You may enter into suffering, men and women, and youngsters. You may enter into suffering. But you have the spiritual courage to pray the spiritual prayer to be everything that God wants you to be in Christ Jesus who lives in you. That's the question. 
So he prays. He says, for this reason, we know what the reason is, I bow my knees to the Father. To the Father. Here we have the Father of who? The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father. So Paul's prayer is addressed to the Father of our Lord. Now in the Bible we know that prayer is addressed to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. You have no access to God the Father. No one goes to God the Father in prayer unless they are in the Son. So the world can pray all they want to God, and they're not getting through. Their prayers go as high as the ceiling if they're not in Christ. That doesn't mean that if you don't answer your end your prayer and in Jesus' name, that doesn't mean that. What it means is you only can come and have access to the holy, sovereign God of the universe through his Son, Jesus Christ, to atone for your sin. By the power of the Spirit, because he who lives in you now, you see? So we pray to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's praying to God the Father. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul calls the Father the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, while he was here as man, Jesus came out of heaven and became what? Man. He's always been what? God. He came down, lowered himself, and became a man. So Paul's referencing, referencing his humanity and God being his Father... But he says, God, our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there we have Father of Jesus in his humanity as he served God on earth, submitted himself to the authority of the Father. Of our Lord, his deity, Jesus Christ, you see. I pray to the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. The Father of Jesus who came out of heaven, became a man, he yielded himself to the Father, called him Abba, right? Papa, Daddy. Of our Lord Jesus, fully God, fully man. Always God came to earth, became a man. And that title reminds us, Father, reminds us of Christ's humanity. You know, people have a problem with submission, right? We know in the Bible that we're to be submitted to governing authorities. Don't buck authority. As a Christian, you are to be in subject to governing authorities. And the one thing you're supposed to do for your leaders instead of badmouth them is pray for them. Pray for them. That's what you're called to do, Christian. Pray for the governing authorities that rule over you as you're submitted under them. Okay? The Bible talks about women being in submission to the authority of man. Are they any less than man? No. No. Rules of submission. And if you want to know the greatest model of submission, it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We're all one in Christ, right? Male and female. Amen? One. Equal in God's eyes. Amen? But yet given roles, distinct roles of submission. Jesus, is he fully God? He's fully God. You know what he did when he came to earth? Submitted himself to the authority of who? The Father. We see God submitting to God. So if you have a problem with submission, look to the one who you profess, Jesus Christ, because he submitted himself to the Father. If he didn't submit himself to the Father, we wouldn't be here today rejoicing, amen? You wouldn't be redeemed without the submission of Christ. So he prays to the Father, the Father of our Lord, eternal God, reminds us of his deity, our Lord, reminds us of his humanity, Christ. The fa God, the Father of Christ. Check this out. For this reason, verse 14, for this reason we saw that, I bow my knees, we saw that, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. This is not referring, guys, check it out, not referring to universal fatherhood, in that, in the end, everyone gets saved. Okay? It's not referring to that. As many people grossly misinterpret that. There's no such thing as scripture as universal fatherhood. You know how people will say, we're all God's children. True or false? False. That's false. We are not all God's children. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, unless a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Right? In John 3, 7, Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born again. What kind of nature are we born with? A sin nature. What happens to happen to that nature? 
has to be transformed. The only one that can transform it is God taking residence within who breathes life into us. That's being born again. We're born again on the inside, you see, with a relationship with Christ. So, it's not universal fatherhood. Because if you remember in Ephesians 2, verse 2, it says, You he made what? Chapter 1 of verse 2 of Ephesians. You he made what? Alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of who? The disobedient. He brought you and I out of that, guys. He's your father and my father because of the redeeming work of Christ. The work of Christ. The Gospel of John says that to as many as believe, to them he gives the right to what? Become children of God. We're born with a sin nature outside of Christ. He brings us into the family of God. He becomes our Father. Our Father. 1 John 3 says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Here's that favorite word of mine, beloved. Beloved, now we are children of God. And again, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, so it's not by heritage, it's not by something you do, nor of the will of man, but of God. God breathed life into you, amen? Jesus said, as the wind blows to and fro, you don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Talking to a friend of mine the other night, Christian, for a couple years, and she was saying, you know, I don't know exactly how it all fit together, but all I know is two years ago I wasn't saved. Today I'm saved and i got a relationship with the living God of the universe, and it's definitely clear in and through my life. I said, you don't know exactly how it happened, do you? No, I don't. Neither do I. That's why Jesus said, you can't see the wind coming or going. You only see the result of it, right? You can see the trees moving. In a hurricane, you see the roof fly off, but you never see the wind. It's God's initiating work. It's his work. How it all fits together? Ask Jesus. As the wind blows to and fro, you don't know where it comes from, nor where it goes. So is everyone who's born in the Spirit. A unique, intimate relationship established by God himself to where he becomes our Father because we become his children. Redeemed. Redeemed. So, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, there's redeemed people in heaven, amen? And there's redeemed people on earth. One day we'll all join together to worship the one who redeemed us forever and ever 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 times a million billion. Or times Goo Goo Plus. Right? Paul calls God the Father, Father, 42 times in his epistles. Eight times right here in Ephesians. There's no other description of God used more frequently in the New Testament than that of Father. And there is no doubt that it all goes back to Jesus who taught his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? Let's go back to the teaching of Jesus. Because the epistles are basically a commentary on the life of Christ, the gospel. In Mark 14.36, mark this, Mark 14.36, he said, Jesus that is, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The cup of what? The cup of wrath. What was the cup of wrath? The cross that faced Jesus Christ. The cross that he freely went to you, went to for you and for me. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down freely. Freely. Abba means daddy. Papa. You know, down south, full-grown men, a lot of times you hear them call their dad, Daddy. Daddy? Hey, Daddy, you know, like my age, 40, 50 years old. Daddy, how are you? Dad comes walking in. Hi, Daddy. I love that. I love it. I love hearing a full-grown man call his dad, Daddy. I love it. Sometimes my daughter still refers to me as Daddy. Father's Day card this morning said, Daddy, I love you. I love Daddy. And if I love it, being a wicked man, and if you love it, from your daughter or even your son, Dad's, and are wicked, our nature that is, how much more does our Father in Heaven must totally love it when we come to Him like that? Amen? Papa, Abba. 
it's a sign that he embraces us because of his grace. He longs for that type of relationship, guys. He longs for you to come into his presence praying things according to his will. Not your daily comfort, man. There's nothing wrong with praying for the sick. We're called to in James. If any among you is sick, come and let the elders lay hands upon you and pray. Yes, but that is not what we're to be preoccupied with, you see. What's your preoccupation with prayer? That's the focus here today. Because that's what Paul's breaking down. What are you preoccupied in with prayer? Does he have your time? Does he have your focus? Is your focus things of the kingdom? That's the question. Does he have you? Does he have you? See, as a believer, guys, this great term of endearment, you don't have to walk in fear as a believer that he's some cold, distant deity. You see the point? God is not some cold, distant deity if you're in Christ. He is Abba, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul's words have a lot of meaning here. You just can't breeze over this stuff. Amen? You don't want to breeze over it. So, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Romans 8.15, speaking of Abba, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. Okay? We've been adopted into the family of God. Amen? In whom we cry out, what? Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Romans 8.15. You can take the most loving father in this room. Probably not me. Take the most loving, and I love my kids to death. I want to give them the best. I want the best for them. I pray for them. I spend time with them. I want to spend time with them. They, as they get teenagers, they want to spend less time with you, but you want to spend time with them. And no matter how much good I've ever done, no matter how much training, no matter how much nurturing, that I've ever done, that I've ever provided for my kid, and any father who's a father is going to provide for his kids as well, his daily provisions, amen? No matter how good a man is to do all that for his children, does not even compare to the love and care that God the Father has for you as his own. Not even close, guys. So we can come boldly to God in prayer, do you get it? We can come boldly before the throne of what? Grace in time of? Need. And you know how often you're in need, believer? You know how often I'm in need? Every moment of every day, minute by minute. And as soon as you get your eyes and your perspective off an eternal perspective of life, because that's what he has, you'll get caught up in everything that's just going on around you. It's going on around you. It doesn't even compare. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this stuff will be added unto you. In other words, daily provisions. Not necessarily desires, but your provisions will be taken care of. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Verse 16. That. Okay, we're getting all these that's. And there's a lot of emphasis putting on the word that. It means that is or that is. And for this reason, I bow my knees, verse 14, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom the whole family of God in heaven and earth is named, that, or in that, he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the what? Inner man. Here's the substance of the prayer. He's beginning to break the prayer down. We got the little introduction to the prayer. Now we're getting into the substance of the prayer, which we'll spend a couple, three weeks on. The substance of the prayer. So he makes four requests. Four. Four requests. And they're more like four parts. And I, I call them a, a connection of control. Because one connects into the other, all for the purpose of his control in and through you. You see? Connection of control. One request leads right into the next. Praise for the inner man. Praise for spiritual strength. Not outward manifest strength, spiritual strength. Spiritual strength, which is the inner man. This body, we're, you know, we're all dying together here today, you know? Physically, we're all dying. Day by day, you get a little closer to death, right? This goes into the grave. 
the real you inside of that body, that tent in which you now dwell here on earth, lives forever. Lives forever. That's the person God's committed to. That's the person, the person in you, the person in this body, the inner man that God is focused on. And he wants you to be focused and allow him to be focused in that part of you as well. Not what you wear, what you drive, where you live, what you do, how comfortable you feel today. Do I have a kingdom perspective, an eternal perspective of life? Or do I just see it day by day by day, whatever's in front of me? And you know what you do? Here's what the devil does. Check it out. God wants you to see like this, okay? Eternally, eternal perspective, because you're able to in Christ. The devil comes with temptations, right? God allows trials into your life. You realize that? He allows trials to grow you, right? To sharpen you. The devil will come and attempt to twist the trial and turn it into a temptation. So that you'll see the trial is a temptation to appease your flesh. You respond in the what? Flesh. So the devil comes here with this trial in front of you. Here's the trial, whatever it is. He comes with this huge, just imagine a magnifying glass. He puts it right in front of your face, and it magnifies the problems in front of you a thousand times. And then begins the devil, that is, begins to prod you to respond to everything physically, emotionally, mentally. If your emotions and your mental capacities are not focused on God, you see? And the way in which you respond when you look at it from that perspective, is a way that will what? Dishonor God. Amen? But when I walk by faith and understand that, okay, I'm in the midst of a trial. I'm not going to allow the devil to turn this into a temptation to where I'm going to yield to it and everyone in the flesh. And through that process, who gets glorified? God does. And you and I grow in faith. Got it? Very important. You must watch and pray. Watch and pray. So, this connection of control. He's praying for strength. He's praying for depth. He's praying for comprehension and fullness. Those are the things that he's praying for. It's the work of the inner man that Paul's concerned about. Very clear. Most prayers today, if you sit in circles of prayer meetings, you hear some of the most immature prayers because they're focused on the material. And you almost, like, roll your eyes. like... I've been in prayer groups where people have been Christians for supposedly 10, 15, 20 years, and their prayers are so immature. So immature. And it's when you get into the Word and get the Word into you and you yield yourself to the authority of the Word that your prayers rise up to a stronger, more mature degree to line up with who's thinking. God's thinking. We're going to teach you the word here because I'm never going to talk down to you. I'm not going to dumb down God's word, and I'm never going to talk to you as though you're a junior high kid. And if you're a junior high kid, I'm not going to talk to you like you're a junior high kid. We're going to elevate the thinking to God's thinking. So we're going to present the word of God in every facet of ministry, whether it's in here, children's ministry, of course, to their level, junior high, senior high. Whatever we do in this church is to elevate the thinking of God's people. To him. To him. Are you sensitive? Yes. Let's start with you. Are you sensitive to the spiritual needs of your family? Are you sensitive? Do you pray in accordance to God's wills for your, for your wife, for your son, for your daughter? Leaders in the church? Your friends? Your pastor? You pray for me? Pray that his will be done in and through me. Pray that I'll have the boldness. Pray that I'll have the confidence and trust in his word. Never to sway off into man's thinking, but that my thinking will always line up with his thinking and that I will present it in the power of the Spirit. That's how you can pray for me. Because that's how I pray for you. My prayers for you is that you will grow in the grace of knowledge of Jesus Christ and elevate your thinking to his. That's, that's Paul's heart. You know, Jesus in his earthly ministry, think about this. Jesus never leaned into his deity when he was here in submission to the Father. Did you know that? Now, he certainly did things that only God can do, raise the dead, amen? But when he walked day by day by day with everything that he faced, normal everyday life, it was all in the power of what? The Spirit. Check this out. Luke, verse, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. 
Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He gets baptized. He's filled with the Spirit. Then he's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, without food, to be what? Tempted by the devil. Was it of God? It was of God. He was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. In Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and then after those 40 days, listen to how Jesus returned. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He went out in the Spirit. He trusted in the Spirit, leaned on the Spirit. How did he refute the lies of the devil? With the Word of God. And he came back in the power of what? The Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, verse 17, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. He walked in the temple to teach, as was his custom. He would stand, they would read from the text, and then they would sit down, and then they would teach. Check out what happened. He was handed the book of Isaiah the prophet. He had opened the book. He found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You know what they wanted to do with him then? They wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. Was he doing God's will? What did they want to do to him? Kill him. Did he suffer affliction for doing God's will? Yes. He was led out in the wilderness by the power of who? By the Spirit. Full of the Spirit. To be tempted. You're walking in the Spirit. You're going to be tempted. You're walking in the Spirit. You're going to suffer affliction. You pray in accordance to God's will for your life and for those around you. The war will start, boy. Don't think it won't. But you have the armor on which we get to chapter 6 and know what the armor is and know how to stand against the wiles, against the lies of the devil. Come on now. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 70 disciples, two by two, 35 groups of two. He sends them out to do ministry, to do a, a, a preparatory work for him to roll in being the gospel. It says, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit when they returned. Rejoiced in the Spirit. He didn't lean into his divinity. He leaned in and trusted in the power of the Spirit, the one who lives in you. You get it? You know, all the power that raised Christ from the dead, as we've studied in chapter 1, is available to you day by day, moment by moment. You know that. You rejoice in that. Isn't it great? You know, it really stinks. The more you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, the more you study his word, the more you understand that. When you do yield to your flesh, how much of an idiot I feel like? Because you know it, right? The more you know it, the more you're accountable for, right? We know it. Power of the Spirit. Holy Spirit power. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of any believer is evidence of salvation. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Again, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is the evidence of salvation. But you, Romans 8 9, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. People can say they're believers all day. So, what is it, 85% of Americans say they're Christians? Some bizarre high number like that. That is not true. It's not true. The world will be a whole lot different. You know what? If just every single person in this room here, I don't know how many people are here, 140 people, were fully yielded to the lordship of Christ in their lives, living out their lives in the power of the Spirit, oh my goodness, what would happen? With just us in this room, living out the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, it would be incredible what God would do in and through this church. That's the exhortation every week. Yield yourself to the Spirit. Yield yourself to the Spirit and what God wants to do in and through you. So, pray in accordance to his will that you would allow him to do that very thing and that you'll have eyes to see and understand when things come into your life, guys, that it's God at work in you. And then yield yourself to him and watch his power unleashed in and through your life. We're going to get into chapter 4. Chapters 4 through 6, we're building this foundation of spiritual understanding, of knowledge, and then the enablement 
of that knowledge to run the race of chapters 4 through 6. And then finally, after all of that, we're going to look at chapters 4, 5, and 6 about relationships between husbands, between wives, between your bosses, between those that work for you. All these things. And then he gets to chapter 6. You know what he does? When you have all this knowledge, you have all this power, you're living out your life according to that power, you're going to need armor because the devil's going to come and attack against you. And you know how much power the devil has against a believer, guys? Only that which you allow him to have. We'd be given a whole armor. So he gives you this whole armor. We're going to break down a piece a week. He says, what you want to do is you want to pick up or put on the belt of truth. You want to gird up the loins of your thinking. Put on the belt of truth. Walk in truthfulness because you are of the truth. You're going to put on the belt. You're going to, you're going to put on the breastplate of righteousness to protect and guard your thinking and your feelings. You're going to put on the helmet of salvation to know that, that, that there's a finish line. You're going to shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace so you can know you can stand on the fact that you've got peace with God. And then you're going to take up the shield of faith. And you're going to take up the sword of the Spirit. And then all of that armor, offensive and defensive, you know what he sums everything up with? With this. He says, Praying always, with all prayer, and supplication, in the Spirit, being watchful, to the end, with all perseverance, in supplication for all the saints. So it is, who are you praying for, and how do you pray for them? Because when you have all this knowledge, and all this able power to live out this truth, you're going to need armor, because the devil will come, and all he can do to you is stand on the sideline of your life and do this. Psst. I got a shortcut. Psst. That's the long road. That's the hard road. This feels better. You're going to feel better about yourself if you do it this way. We're called to do two things against the devil. Two. A stand and what? Resist. That's it. Stand against him and resist him. You got all the knowledge. You got all the power. You're living your life this way, which enables that power. You got the armor to protect you from the enemy. And by the way, never stop praying, Paul says. Never cease to pray. Never give yourself to the enemy. Never let your guard down, but pray. So when you're praying, what are you praying for? What are you praying for? The point is this. The battle is never over, you guys. The more you lend yourself to the power of God, the more you give yourself of him with an internal perspective, it's the devil, the enemy's not going to rest. He's not going to go, oh, those guys are so yielded to Christ, we're just going to leave them alone. The devil hates Jesus Christ. We learned last week that the devil and the demons are defeated foes of Christ by the cross. They hate him. And if you're in Christ, he hates you. And there's nothing he can do in regard to your salvation. It's a done sealed deal, amen? If you're not in Christ, you're lost and you're his anyway. The devil said it, okay? If you're in Christ, you are sealed. He has no power over you because he who is in me that is greater than what? He that's in the world. He that is in you is greater than he that is in, that is in the world. So lend yourself to the one who lives in you, amen? Give yourself to him. Pray in accordance to his will so that you'll have the power to live it out. That's what Paul's praying here. That's what he's praying but the battle's not over. You can have a church that's so given to doing the will of the word of God. It's going to make the devil uneasy. He's going to come and tempt you to take shortcuts, do things that will appease men, that will do things to appease the culture, guys. Period. Period. And I'm not going to lead in that manner. We're going to lead according to God's purpose. Look at what Jesus said. Check this out. Write this down. Luke 21, beginning in verse 34. Jesus said, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and, check it out, the cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly. That's his day. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. 
Colossians 4.2, write this down. It says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. To continue earnestly means to courageously persist, be persistent, to hold fast and never let go. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. A conscious awareness of God all throughout the day. Set aside time for prayer. Set aside time for meditation of Scripture, because when you read and then meditate upon the Scripture, it changes your thinking. It will change your prayer life. Philippians 4.6, you suffer with anxiety? You ever feel like life is overwhelming, just full of anxiety? You want to learn how to get rid of it? Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Here's the result. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You suffer with anxiety? You want to get rid of it? Pray always. Pray in accordance to his will. Get into his word. Get his word into you. Yield yourself to the authority of the word, which is the Holy Spirit. Submission to the will. And the anxiety will fizzle away. And your thinking will be lined up with his. You bring glory to God, and you'll have, guess what? With a capital J, brothers and sisters, joy. Joy. You should always pray off of and according to the theological foundation, you guys, that has been laid in the Bible. That's why we're spending all this time in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's the theology of God. It's the theology of his, thir of his church. Are you with me? Remember, you've been granted the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's according to the riches of what? His glory. Remember we did that study about according to, not out of. If you take a rich man, rich man comes in, says, hey, I want to give, uh, let, let's say he's a, a, a billionaire. He's a billionaire. And he says, hey, I want to go to this church and I want to support this ministry. And he gives us ten bucks. Do you give according to his riches or out of his riches? Out of. To give according to would be, you know, to lay down, what did I say he had a billion? To lay down a hundred million. That's given according to. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing according to the riches of Christ Jesus. Of which, you guys, there's no end. There's no end. There's no end to the power that he wants to give to you. The question is, are you praying to be yielded to it? It's not about being preoccupied with the outer man. It's about being preoccupied with the inner man. Paul was preoccupied with the inner man, the people that he prayed for. Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae. Look at Philippians 1. Look at Colossians 1. Look at these prayers in Ephesians. They all parallel one another, you guys. And it focuses on the inner man of God's people that he's praying for. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Check this out. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Just, just write it down. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is be re being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding internal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary. The big bling-bling you want, you know, the cars, the money, and whatever else you fit in that category, it's all perishing. It's perishing. It's temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Your physical body's in the process of decay right now. You get more stinky the older you get. Paul, indeed, wore himself out in ministry. Did he not? He wore himself out doing ministry. The maturity of the believer ought to be to grow into more Christ-likeness. Amen? More Christ-likeness. So we take all this knowledge that we're learning, knowing that we have the able ability to live it out. Enlightenment. Enablement for the race that we're about to get into in the weeks to come. Practical day-to-day -day relationships and living. You know, if you want to grow in maturity and the knowledge of how to pray, you got to be in the Word of God. Amen? you got to spend time in the Word of God to learn how to pray. You go to corporate prayer meetings and listen to people who are mature, been walking with Christ a long time, you'll learn how to pray. You know, my kids growing up, if we were raising our kids in the Lord, you know, they used to pray for things like, 
Lord, I pray that we'll have fun today. I pray that we'll have a good day in school. I pray that we'll have fun. I pray that we can go to Disneyland. Okay? Lord, I pray that everyone in the world will get saved. Right? They don't pray like that anymore. Those are childlike prayers. Okay? My daughter's 13, my son's 17. As they pray now, they pray much more like spiritual adults. Because it was our job to nurture them. It was my job to go to them and say, look, praying for everyone in the world to get saved is not biblical, first of all, because we know not everyone's going to be saved. What you want to do is pick out a few people in your life who you know don't know Christ, specifically pray for them with the knowledge that you have of them in light of the knowledge that you have of God. Now, if my children still prayed like that, that would be my fault. That would be my problem. So, fathers, train your children in the way to pray that's according to Scripture. And pray for your families according to Scripture. Because look at what Hebrews chapter 5 says. Listen to this as we prepare to close. Verse 12. For though by this time the writer of Hebrews is writing these people, you ought to have been teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles, which is the word, of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of only milk is unskilled in the word of, right, in the word of righteousness. For he's obeyed. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use, key, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So knowledge without obedience does not advance a person into greater Christ-likeness. Amen? It will not. It will not. It's the inner man that makes you spiritually succeed. So, you must, guys, allow the Holy Spirit to empower the inner man. So, we get, how do I allow the Holy Spirit to empower the inner man? How do I do that? Maybe you're sitting here today. How do I do that? It means that all of your spiritual faculties are controlled by God. You know, Colossians says, let the peace of God rule your heart. You know what it means? Let the peace of God rule your heart. The word rule means arbitrate, means to referee. Let it be the whistle that blows, boy. Right? As soon as the peace of you abiding in Christ is jolted, by your thinking, by your behavior, right? Let the peace be the referee. The peace that you have from walking and abiding in Christ. When it's jolted, stop. Confess any sin that he's pointed out. It means having a life that's clean, a life that's pure as you walk in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's focusing on the inner man. The inner man. People are focused on the outer man today, Amen. I go to the gym, I try to go to the gym, not as much as I used to, I don't have time, but when I do go, people are consumed with their body. I got a couple gym buddies in here right now that I know from the gym. And some people are way more consumed than others or whatever, and you see it, and it pays off, amen? It pays off to work out hard. First Timothy 4.8 says this, bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of life that now is and of that which is to Come. So you get the benefit of both when you exercise the inner man. Benefit here and a benefit when you step into glory. You see? Glory to God. You know, the world is so much like, the church, I should say, is so much like the world today. As I wrap up, listen to this quote. Someone has said, this one of the out of one of those someone has said books. Someone has said, if God took the Holy Spirit out of this world, most of what we Christians are doing would go right on and nobody would even know the difference. Do you believe it? But we can do something about it, can't we? We can take all the knowledge that we're gaining, all the knowledge that we know, and we can yield ourselves and enable ourselves to walk in the power that's been granted to you, that's been granted to me, resurrection power, according to the riches of his grace, not out of, according to. Unlimited, in other words, right? Paul was preoccupied people's spiritual lives. I hope that we can be, as we ought to be, preoccupied with the spiritual life of ourselves and the spiritual life of those around us. And I want to close with this. You sense a lack of the spirit of the power with the power of the spirit within you? Pray a prayer that Jesus laid out. Luke eleven. We're going to close with this. Luke chapter eleven. Jesus is talking about prayer. 
He talks about a friend coming at midnight, knocking on the door, right? And he's asking for bread for a, someone who's come to journey to visit him, right? Unexpected guest. So he comes knocking on the door of his friend. His friend yells out, look, man, we're all in bed. And in that day, you slept with your kids because it was a way to keep warm. You had your room, your wife, your kids, all bundled up together. And to get up would be to disrupt them. So he yells out, look, we're all in bed. Leave us alone. Come back tomorrow. But his friend just keeps knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. And what does the friend, what does the guy in bed do? He gets up and gives him his request, doesn't he? So following that story, Jesus says this. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? From the Sea of Galilee. The flat, the flat pita-looking bread that they had in that day. They had flat stones around the Sea of Galilee, like these sandstones. Put them on a table at a distance back in the back room there. From here, it would look like bread. He's saying, look, you being evil, you're not going to trick your son to say, hey, go take, a, go take a bite out of the bread on the right-hand side. <laughs> if a father's not going to trick his son, do you think God's going to trick his son? No. So if a, if, a, if, a, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? No. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? In Jewish thinking, what was clean, a fish or a serpent? Fish was clean, being clean to eat. So if a father's not going to do anything to defile his son by misleading him to eat that which is unclean in the Jewish mind, do you think your father's going to lead you to do something to defile yourself? No. Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Now that's kind of hard to figure out until you do some back cultural background stuff. And there's a scorpion um, over in Palestine that when it pulls itself up, it pulls itself up when it feels it's in danger. If you look from a distance, it looks like an egg. If you, being evil, would not lead your son when he asks for an egg, to a scorpion which will harm him and kill him. Will your father in heaven mislead you? What's the answer? No. So, if you then, being evil, know how to, and that's our nature, right? We're saved by grace. We still have that sin in us, amen? Warring against that redeemed side of us, flesh against the spirit, spirit against flesh. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who what? Ask.